This morning we're going to finish our brief mini-series that we've put in at the end of our series of Nehemiah. In fact, I'll wrap up Nehemiah next Sunday, I believe. Um, and these messages are more technical than normal. If you're a newer Christian or if you're not yet a Christian, and I say not yet because I hope you will be one, uh, this may be a little too much, but just try to grab what you can and get something from it. I hope you can. Uh, also, I'll be making an important announcement at the end of the service. Uh, it's not a bad announcement, but it's an embarrassing announcement for me, as you will see. Um, hope everyone has, has a note sheet. All right. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 15 reads, Be diligent to present yourself, approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Notice this last phrase, rightly dividing the word of truth. The word of truth is the same as Scripture. So we are instructed to rightly divide Scripture. Those words rightly dividing are translated from just one word in the original Greek language. And that word meant a cutting straight. A cutting straight. For instance, that ancient word was used to describe a priest who sliced up sacrificial animals according to specific divine instructions. That word was used to describe a farmer who plowed a straight furrow through a field. That word was used to describe a stonemason who quarried a huge rock so that it, it could fit perfectly into the foundation of a building. That same word was used to describe a tailor who cut cloth in order to have perfect pieces to put together for a garment. That same word was used to describe a tent maker who cut animal skins in order to put them together in constructing a tent. So that one word in the original language that is translated rightly dividing meant cutting something straight. God said we are to cut the scriptures straight. And that means don't alter the meaning of a biblical text and don't misrepresent what God has said. No book is more misused and abused than is the Bible. And to be less than precise in interpreting scripture is to misrepresent God. That means one of the most appropriate questions we can answer is how do we interpret scripture? How do we determine what God meant by what God said? As we have said in earlier messages, biblical hermeneutics is the science of biblical interpretation. And throughout this miniature series, we have focused on four basic hermeneutical principles. We have addressed the literal principle, the historical principle, last time the grammatical principle, and this morning, the fourth and final hermeneutical principle is the contextual principle. We have mentioned context before, but this morning we're going to expand on that principle. Notice the definition. The contextual principle is teaching us that we are to understand what a text means according to the context where it is found. We are to understand what a biblical text means according to the context where it is found. Some people have a bad habit of pulling verses out of context. As a collective group, the worst are probably non-Christian cults, such as Jehovah Witnesses. 
Witnesses use just 6% of the Bible in their propaganda. And that 6% consists primarily of verses wrenched out of context. But I'm seeing more and more celebrity pastors of evangelical megachurches doing the exact same thing. Quoting verses out of context is the same as misquoting God because verses consist of God's words. No one wants to be misquoted, including God. A text biblical context consists of those verses that are before and those verses that are after the verse in question. The context consists of those verses before and those verses after the verse in question. The context could actually start in the preceding chapter, and it could actually end in the next chapter. That's because chapter and verse divisions were not part of the original biblical manuscripts. Chapter and verse divisions weren't added uh, until centuries after the biblical canon was completed. The reason the Bible was divided into chapters and verses was to help us more easily find the verse that we want to find. Imagine reading the Bible and there are no chapters and verses, divisions, none. It, it could take forever to find something. In 1227 AD, the Archbishop of Canterbury named Stephen Langton divided both Testaments, both Old and New Testaments, up into chapters. The English translation from John Wycliffe was the first Bible uh, to use chapter divisions, although that was before the printing press, so it was hand-copied. The Catholic Church banned Wycliffe's Bible and declared him a heretic. In 1448, a Jewish rabbi named Nathan divided the Old Testament up into verses. And then in 1551, a French printer named Robert Stevens, more commonly known as Stephanus, divided the New Testament into standard numbered verses. He did that over a six-month period, riding his horse from Switzerland to France. The first Bible to be printed using both chapter and verse divisions in both testaments was a Latin translation called the Latin Vulgate. And the first printed English Bible using both chapter and verse divisions was the Geneva Bible. And the Geneva Bible was the Bible the pilgrims brought here on the Mayflower. And that Geneva Bible is still available. The problem is those chapter and verse divisions, although helpful, aren't always the most accurate. Remember, chapter and verse divisions are not inspired scripture. It is just the words in the actual text that are inspired scripture. But sometimes we forget that and we isolate verses from the entire context. And that context might actually extend into the chapter before and it might extend onto the chapter after. That's the reason some theologians encourage us to ignore the chapter divisions and instead focus on the textual paragraphs. Good study Bibles uh, often divide the text into paragraphs, and that's helpful in determining exactly where the context starts and where the context ends. The context might consist of just three verses or 13 verses, 
or even more verses. The context are those related verses that are both before and after the verse in question. The context is primarily the most important factor in interpreting a text. In 1938, a former medical doctor named M.R. Dehan founded an organization called the Radio Bible Class, famous for the devotional booklets we give our guests called Daily Bread. Dr. Dehan made this statement, quote, a text taken out of its context is just a pretext. A pretext is an excuse to do or say something that is not accurate. Politicians do that all the time. Politicians sometimes campaign on a platform that is actually just a pretext to implementing another agenda after the election. Once more, a text taken out of its context is just a pretext. This morning we're addressing two examples of verses that are often interpreted out of context. The first one is from the Old Testament. Notice Genesis 31, verse 49. Also, Mizpah, because he said, now this is a a man named Laban speaking to Jacob. Also, Mizpah, because he said, may the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent one from another. Hallmark Cards has used this verse on religious greeting cards. This is that verse on a t-shirt. This one is from Hobby Lobby. And then here it is on a coffee mug. This verse also became popular during Desert Storm between servicemen stationed in the Middle East and their families in the States. In modern Christian culture, that particular verse has been used to describe friendship and relational closeness between people. People use this verse to teach that God is going to watch over two close friends or watch over marriage partners during times of separation from one another. And I agree, God does do that, but that is not what this verse is teaching. May the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent one from another. On the surface, that sounds fantastic. We're separated, but that's okay. God's going to watch over us in our friendship. But that statement doesn't mean what most people think it means. This passage has Laban speaking to Jacob. Laban was Jacob's uncle, and ultimately Laban became Jacob's father-in-law. Now, for those that don't know, or for those that have forgotten, the first progenitor of the Jewish people, the famous patriarch, patriarch means famous father, the first patriarch of the Jewish people was a man named Abraham. Abraham had a son named Isaac, and Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob was a twin, and his twin brother was Esau. Now, Jacob had earlier on been a deceiver, a blatant deceiver, cunning deceiver. Laban, his uncle and future father-in-law, was also a deceiver and a trickster. It's complicated, but Jacob had 
manipulated a situation and had stolen his older brother Esau's birthright and he had deceived his father Isaac into blessing him instead of blessing Esau. Jacob had been a con man. And these verses are about Jacob getting what he deserved for his deceitfulness. What goes around comes around. This was payback time for both Laban and Jacob. So Laban said to Jacob, let's start where the context starts. Verse 44, now therefore come, let us make a covenant. A covenant is an agreement, but you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. Verse 45, so Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. Verse 46, then Jacob said to his brethren, gather stones, and they took stones and made a heap meaning a heap of stones, and they ate there on the heap. So the two men set up a large pile of stones. So Laban and Jacob, in order to confirm this agreement between them, made a a big, huge pile of rocks. Verse 48, and Laban said, let this heap, meaning heap of stones, uh, is a witness between you and me this day. Therefore, its name was called Gilead. This next verse is the critical verse we just read. Verse 49, also Mizpah, because he said, May the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent one from another. Since most of us are Nevadans, that name Mizpah should sound familiar because there is a supposed haunted motel in Tonopah called the Mizpah Hotel. It's off Highway 95, going south toward Las Vegas. Some of us have seen it. Uh, In our first service, a couple shared how they had spent the night there um, in a haunted hotel. Uh, The television program Ghost Adventures actually filmed an episode there. That's the Mizpah Hotel. What does that have to do with this verse? Not a lot. (laughs) But I thought it was interesting. Verse 51, then Laban said to Jacob, here is this heap, heap of stones, and here is this pillar which I have placed, notice, between you and me. Verse 52, this heap of stones is a witness, and this pillar is a witness, that I, this is Laban speaking, that I will not pass this heap of stones to you, And you will not pass beyond this heap of stones and this pillar to do me for harm. Neither Laban nor Jacob trusted one another, and there was ample reason for that mistrust. So verse 49, the verse we're reading that is often misunderstood, is actually a statement of mistrust between these two men. Verse 53, the God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, and the God of their father judge between us. And Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. It is so important to understand what just happens. The context which we have just read indicates that this statement from verse 49 isn't a comment about friendship. It isn't a comment about God watching over two friends that have been geographically separated from one another. It's the exact opposite. This situation describes Jacob and Laban feuding over personal property rights. 
in order to prevent potential problems and conflict between them, Laban and Jacob created an agreement, a covenant. And to represent that covenant and agreement and to ensure that that agreement wouldn't be violated, those men set up this boundary marker consisting of a pile of stones called the Mizpah. Mizpah means watchtower. It was just a big pile of rocks. The two men made this covenant and agreed that God would do constant surveillance and watch over them in case one of them moved that pile of rocks in order to get an advantage over the other one or to bring harm to the other one. God would be the eye in the sky. If God were to see one of them violate that agreement and move those boundary markers, then God would judge that person and execute him. So verse 49 wasn't a covenant of blessing between two friends, but a covenant of warning between two men that didn't trust one another. Basically, the verse means, guys, don't move those rocks or else. The immediate context gives a, this verse a totally different meaning than the contemporary meaning. It is true. God can and God does watch over us and a friend or a relative if we're absent from one another. But don't use this text to argue that point because that's not what this verse is teaching. Second example, and we're going to park on this one. A second example of a text taken out of context and becoming a pretext is found in Matthew 18, verse 19. Jesus made this statement. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. This statement from Jesus is sometimes often misunderstood and misused to teach that if two of us would just agree together on something and then pray together about that particular need, that is a guarantee from God that he will give us what we agreed about and prayed for, no matter what that particular need is. A job promotion, a raise, a prospective mate, a cure to an incurable disease, a better GPA next semester, a recovering retirement program, uh, another more affordable house, a better car than our current one that spends more time in the shop than our garage, and on and on. The misunderstanding is that if two of us agree on wanting something from God, and together we ask God for that something, then God has committed himself to answer that prayer request. Now, this part is subtle, but that interpretation implies that prayers from multiple people are more effective than just one person praying himself. If that's the case, then why would Jesus encourage praying alone? Matthew 6, verse 6, But you, when you pray... Go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. That is describing personal, private, solitary praying, and God blesses that. I would suggest that more personal, private prayers are answered than are 
corporate prayers answered because Christians don't pray together as often as we should. That is the most common interpretation, though, of this verse. If two people agree about a need and then together pray about that need, then God will answer that request. Notice verse 20. Jesus said, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Verse 20 is a significant factor in interpreting this text, and it is another often misused verse. Here it is on a t-shirt. Question. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered together. What is the stated purpose of these persons gathering together mentioned in verse 20? Is it a corporate worship service such as this one? No. Is it a corporate prayer meeting where people are meeting together to pray? Actually, no. This gathering together is to conduct church discipline. And most people completely miss that because most people never consider the context. Starting in verse 15, Jesus enumerates the required steps we are to use in confronting, correcting, and restoring someone that has sinned. There are two reasons Matthew 19 is not guaranteeing us an answer to prayer. Reason number one, this is another case of isolationism. Notice the definition. Isolationism is isolating a passage from the rest of Scripture. The best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. The Bible is God's book. He has authored the entire Bible. And God can interpret what he has said in the book he has authored. So examine other associated related Scripture. Compare Scripture to Scripture, and if we do that, we see that there are additional criteria for receiving answers to prayer. Other criteria, such as self-unselfish praying, such as praying in the name of Jesus, and all that means, such as praying according to God's will, and other criteria. To formulate a doctrine on prayer, we need to put together all of the biblical criteria on prayer throughout Scripture and not just an isolated verse on the subject. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not against agreeing together and praying together. It's the reason we have a men's prayer night once a month and women's prayer night. I just don't believe, though, that agreeing together in prayer is a blank check or carte blanche from God. Reason number two is that interpretation doesn't fit the context. That interpretation doesn't fit the immediate context. If we are careful to examine verses 19 and 20, then we see that these sometimes misunderstood verses are connected to the four preceding verses. And the four preceding verses are addressing church discipline. And that's the immediate context. Church discipline starts after we have first-hand knowledge of sin, not a piece of sketchy information from some unreliable rumor mill source and gossip, but we're made aware of someone's sin through reliable sources, and then as Christians, we have two options once we are made aware of that problem. Option one is to let love cover that offense. Let love cover that offense. That is, if the offense is something insignificant enough to ignore. Proverbs 19, verse 11. The discretion of a man makes him slow 
to anger, um, meaning this man isn't a hothead. And his glory, some translate this as his virtue or his earning respect, is to overlook a transgression. Overlook a transgression, and transgression is sin. First Peter 4, verse 8, And above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. No one is perfect. Um, even Christians continue to sin. And most sin shouldn't be confronted. We should let love cover most sin. And to let love cover an offense or a sin means we ignore it, we don't think about it, we don't talk to someone else about it. If it's a personal offense, we continue to interact with that offending person as if nothing had ever happened. That's letting love cover the offense. Second option is to confront the offender about the offense. Confront the offender about the offense. If there's a sin or an offense that is too serious to ignore, if that infraction has the potential to bring serious harm to this person or to other persons, then that offense or sin should be confronted. If the sin is serious enough that it could result in someone being removed from the congregation, then it should be confronted. Now, because of time limitations, uh, this is a much abbreviated comment on this text, but, but let me get into this. The first step in the discipline process is to speak to this offending person privately about the offense. Notice verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, that's describing a personal offense and sin, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, then you have gained your brother. This word brother is not gender specific, but means both male and female. The first step, if we've been offended, and it's a serious, serious offense, is to set up a private meeting and speak to this offending person about the offense he has committed and then see how he responds to that confrontation. Now the inference is that this sin to be confronted is a continuing sin that is unconfessed and unresolved because this person is ignoring his sin. In some cases, this person might not even be aware of his sin. He could have a blind spot, and all of us have blind spots, and he just doesn't see that he's in error. That has happened to me. I'm grateful that someone confronted me. And more about that at the end of this message. I have been confronted much more than I have ever confronted. I have been confronted about some offense or sin than I have ever confronted someone else for the same. Especially I don't confront if the sin is a personal offense committed against me. People offend me. I say nothing. People have hurt me um, to a serious extent before, but I've said nothing because I have let love cover those offenses. It's not about me. Our culture has become so hypersensitive. People are so easily offended, and I don't want to give others the impression I'm one of them. Someone said the problem is we take ourselves too seriously and we don't take God seriously enough. 
But if there's a private meeting and a confrontation and this person admits his wrongdoing, he apologizes, he asks to be forgiven, then things between that person and ourselves are restored and everything is as it should be. If, though, this person refuses to admit his sin, or in some cases he admits his sin and he doesn't care, then we have step two. Step two is to speak to this offending person a second time, but with one or two witnesses. One or two witnesses. Verse 16, but if he will not hear you, meaning after this private meeting and confrontation, he he doesn't listen, doesn't change. Take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. So if our earlier confrontation was unsuccessful, then we are to confront this person a second time, and this time return with two or three additional persons. In the Pentateuch, the Pentateuch meaning the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, also called the Torah. In the Pentateuch, or Torah, Moses said that two or three witnesses were needed to confirm the facts in a dispute or in an allegation of a wrongdoing. To protect someone from being slandered or accused of a sin or accused of a crime he didn't commit, the Mosaic Law required two or three witnesses of that sin or crime in order to collaborate any charge that is brought against someone. That was an important protection against the false accusation of an innocent person. And in the case of church discipline, those required one or two witnesses at this second stage of confrontation are there to do three things. One, to witness the actual confrontation itself and those allegations brought against this offending person. And this is critical because all confrontation is to be conducted in love. And the ultimate objective is always to restore that offending person. Second, those witnesses are there to establish the legitimacy of the accusation that is made. If at all possible, those witnesses selected to accompany the offended person uh, at this second stage, if at all possible, those witnesses should be actual eyewitnesses to the particular sin and or sins this person has been accused of. Now, sometimes that isn't possible. There aren't eyewitnesses. If not actual eyewitnesses, then these witnesses should, if at all possible, be privy to evidence of that sin, even if that evidence is circumstantial. Third, these witnesses are there to witness this sinning person's reaction to that confrontation. And this is critical since... Where it goes from here is contingent on the person's reaction. If the second confrontation is successful, and this person does admit his wrongdoing and apologize and wants to be forgiven, then we have regained our brother at that point. But if the second confrontation is unsuccessful, then we go to the third step. Step number three is to bring this person and his offense, his sin, to the attention of the church. Verse 17. And if he refuses to hear them, meaning he refuses to hear the offended person and those two or three witnesses at stage two, tell it to the church. 
The third step is to tell it to the church, meaning to bring this matter to the attention of the church's highest governing body, such as a church council, or in our case, a board of elders. Then let that group address him and encourage this offending person to repent. As often happens, if this person refuses to meet that board or council, uh, if he refuses to meet them in person, then that group should send him a letter uh, encouraging him to do the same thing. Now, the context would indicate that addressing and correcting someone's sin should be done in the tightest possible circle. The tightest circle possible. If possible, stage one, one-on-one. If that's not successful, then that circle expands to an additional two or three more. And if that's not successful, then the circle is expanded some more to an additional group such as the elders. Going before the entire congregation, though, should be saved for the absolute, absolute final stage. And most erring congregants, if this procedure is followed, resolve their sin problem in the earlier stages, and it never gets to stage four. There is, though, stage four, and that is to remove this person from the congregation and act toward him as a non-believer. Remove this person and act toward him as a non-believer. Verse 17, but if he refuses even to hear the church, meaning he ignored the elders that tried to contact him, uh, he refuses to meet, he refuses to cooperate, then let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. After these three earlier steps, if there's still no contrition and no repentance on the part of the offending person, then that person should be, according to this statement, removed from the congregation. This fourth step has different names attached to it. Some call this being dis fellowship. Catholicism calls this excommunication. And in Amish communities, this is called shunning. In most evangelical congregations, this entire process consisting of these four steps is called church discipline. And in the end, this stubborn, persistent, unrepentant person is removed, expelled from the congregation meaning his name is removed from that congregant's formal membership, and uh, individual congregants are from that point on encouraged to act toward this person as if he were a non-Christian. This is where I'm struggling with how some congregations practice or implement verse 17. It seems after reading these verses, Jesus is offering us a model for reconciliation and restoration. But so often, these verses are used for alienation. A common approach to understanding and practicing verse 17 is that someone that has been expelled from a congregation, someone that has been removed and is now on the outside, that person is to be ignored, shunned, ostracized, And all communication toward that person is to be cut off. If we see that, quote, unrepentant person in an aisle at Smith's, then we turn in the opposite direction and go down another aisle in order to avoid him. 
There is to be this complete exclusion of this person. I am aware of instances where there has been in public services, uh, public humili humiliation and shaming of the one who has been expelled. That's spiritual abuse. And that sounds retributive to me. And the church is not in the business of retribution. Now notice Jesus said, we are to act toward this expelled person as if, as if he is a heathen and a tax collector. Not that he is one, but we are to act toward him as if he were one. Heathens at this time were non-Jewish Gentiles that indulged in gross paganism. And tax collectors were considered societal scum. Those men that collected taxes for the Roman Empire were considered so unethical, their testimonies were not permitted in a court of law. So heathens and tax collectors is a phrase Jesus used to describe those outside the church, the unsaved, unregenerate, non-Christian people. Question, how did Jesus act toward those on the outside? How did Jesus act and react toward the unsaved and those that weren't on Team Jesus? Don't miss this. He acted such that the Pharisees accused him of, quote, being a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That's from Luke 7, verse 34. He so associated with them, he was accused of being a friend of them. Jesus didn't alienate himself from sinners. He didn't isolate himself from sinners. He wasn't estranged from sinners. He associated with sinners. He befriended sinners. He ate meals with sinners. And in biblical times, eating a meal was the most intimate and personalized means of socializing together. How we act towards someone that is unsaved and outside our church is how we are expected to act toward someone that has been disciplined or expelled from the church. One more time, how we act and react towards someone that is unsaved, unregenerate, a non-Christian outside the church is how we are expected to act towards someone that has been disciplined and removed from the church. Notice something. This section on church discipline is found in Matthew 18. And who was the human author God used to record these words in this gospel? His name was Matthew. And what was Matthew's profession before he met Jesus? He was a hated, unethical tax collector. Jesus met Matthew during the time he was still in that profession. Did Jesus ignore him? No. Did Jesus judge him and shun him? No. Instead, Jesus chose him to become one of the 12 disciples. Jesus loved Matthew to himself. And that is the approach we should have toward those that have been removed from the congregation. For those amateur theologians in this room, I'm aware that 1 Corinthians 5 has another and seemingly stronger comment on that, and we can discuss that at another time. But this text from Matthew 18 seems to teach that as a congregation, we should remain resolved in our convictions about someone's sin 
we aren't to cave to pressure and, and say it's okay if it's not okay. We are to be resolved in our attitude about someone's sins, but we should also be grieved and saddened and announce to this unrepentant person, I'm so sorry it has come to this. Jesus told us we are to consider you as a heathen and a tax collector. So to us, it is as if you are a non-believer. But please understand something. You matter to us. We love you. And we want you to reconsider this decision to continue in sin. Please do the right thing. And please repent from this thing. And return to us, please. That is to be our attitude. Because Jesus wants us to reconcile and restore a sinning brother. Understand that verses 18 through 20 is just a continuation of verses 15 through 17. So Jesus is continuing to address church discipline. That is the immediate context of these verses. Verse 18, Jesus continued, Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That would have been a familiar phrase to his audience because Jewish rabbis often spoke about an action on earth being bound in heaven or being loosed in heaven. Heaven was a common euphemism that meant God himself. God and heaven were synonyms in the ancient Jewish mind. Rabbis wanted to be certain that whatever men decided to do on earth that it was consistent with what God had decided in heaven. Think through this. If at the end of this discipling, pardon me, disciplining process, this congregation has decided there's no other option. We must bind someone. Binding someone meant to actually remove them, expel them from the congregation then because the biblical procedural specifics were met throughout that process, that congregation can be confident that heaven agrees with that decision because God has already decided that offending person should be bound, meaning expelled. If though after this process is completed, the congregation has decided to loosen someone, loosening someone means to restore them to the congregation, then that congregation has the same assurance that God has already loosened that someone in heaven. This process must be conducted according to biblical procedure so that whatever actions and reactions the congregation decides to do on earth conform to what God has decided about those same actions and reactions in heaven. It's not that God must conform to what the congregation decides to do about disciplining someone, but if a congregation commits itself to this biblical procedure we just read, then it has actually conformed its ultimate decision to what God has decided in heaven. And in doing that, the congregation receives heaven's blessings and confirmation. One more time, the verses in question, verses 19 and 20. Verse 19, the first word is again. That means the subject matter hasn't changed. We are still discussing discipline. Remember, verses 15 through 18 are about church discipline. Again, I say to you that if two of you on earth agree 
on earth concerning anything that they ask. Does this mean that just anything those two agree on and ask for? No. It means anything that those two agree on and ask for concerning a matter of discipline. If it's a matter of discipline and we're agreeing and asking, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. That means if a church handles a discipline case according to biblical protocol, then those that are enacting that discipline can ask whatever they need from God to help facilitate that process, and God must give it to them. I assume wisdom would be the first item on that prayer list. Verse 20. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, Jesus said, I am there in the midst of them. Notice something interesting. These two or three persons mentioned in verses 19 and 20 could possibly be the same two or three witnesses mentioned in the second step from verse 16. If all the appropriate steps have been enacted and if the ultimate determination is that someone be bound, meaning be removed from the congregation, this person is content in his sin, he is unrepentant, there's no contrition, then that person must be bound and removed from the congregation. And if all the appropriate steps have been taken, then God agrees with that determination. If the determination has been made that someone has been apologetic, he has been consumed with guilt, he is sincere, he's repented from his sin, he's manifesting fruits or evidence of that repentance, then he should be permitted to be loosened, to be loosened meaning he should be permitted to remain in the congregation, and if that's the determination, God also agrees. In summation, the context would indicate that these two or three people gathered together here in this text are not meeting for the purpose of prayer in a generic sense. These people are not gathering together and agreeing together to give God a grocery list of needs and greeds that he is expected to meet. No, these people are meeting together to enact church discipline. John MacArthur said this, to interpret this verse, verse 19 in particular, as promising believers a blank check for anything they might agree to ask God for, not only does it not fit the context of church discipline, but it does violence to the rest of Scripture. Such an interpretation is tantamount to magic in which God is automatically bound to grant the most foolish or sinful request, simply because two of his children conspire to ask him for it. The idea flies in the face of God's sovereignty and completely undercuts the countless scriptural commands for believers' obedient submission to his will. And I agree. Context matters. We must interpret a text in its context. I want us to bow our heads for a moment, then I have an announcement. Father, thank you for your word. I know it's been a little different these past four Sundays, a little more academic than I normally am. I just hope it's made sense. Hope it's been helpful. I just pray, God, that we will 
apply these four principles, a literal principle, historical principle, the grammatical principle, and then the contextual principle to every verse we read in your book so that we might understand exactly what you want us to know. So thank you for what we've learned. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to do something that I've been pastoring as a lead pastor. We started our first church in January of 1975. I've been pastoring ever since, so you can do the math. I've never had to do what I'm doing this morning. I need to apologize for something I said in the sermon from last Sunday. For those of you that were here and heard that sermon, for those of you that weren't here might have seen the sermon online. I was discussing baptism and the meaning of the Greek word baptizo, um, and in particular, I mentioned infant baptism. And as an illustration, I commented on the Lutheran perspective on infant baptism. I commented on Lutheranism's founder, Martin Luther, the famous Protestant reformer. And in passing, this wasn't my primary objective, just in passing, I mentioned that Luther practiced transubstantiation in serving communion. Remember, Luther was a former Catholic priest. He had wanted to reform the church from the inside. That wasn't acceptable to the Pope and the church authority, so he was forced out, um, branded a heretic. He was forced into hiding for a period of time. Uh, I mentioned, though, that uh, as a Catholic priest, he'd been trained in transubstantiation, and I made the statement that Luther continued after the Reformation started, continued to practice transubstantiation, and that was the present position of the Lutheran Church. I had read that from a source I thought was authoritative and reliable. Turns out it wasn't. After the first service, a guest uh, cared enough about the truth She challenged me on that. She had spent 36 years in Lutheranism, so she had some credibility. She was extremely kind and gracious in that confrontation, and I'm grateful she challenged me to reconsider what I said. We exchanged numerous emails throughout the afternoon and the evening and the next morning. It turns out I was mistaken. I misrepresented Martin Luther, and I misrepresented Lutheranism. I was wrong. Misrepresentation is never right. It's never right to misrepresent a denomination, a congregation, or an individual. And I did that. It was totally unintentional, uh, but that's not an excuse. I was wrong. And I apologize for my error. The fact is Martin Luther rejected transubstantiation, and so does the Lutheran denomination. There are 40 different Lutheran groups that represent modern Lutheranism, and those groups do not now teach or practice transubstantiation. Part of the confusion exists because Lutheranism uses the same communion language as Catholicism does. Both groups teach, quote, the real presence of Christ in communion the real presence of Christ in communion. But there is a subtle difference between them. Lutheranism, as we just said, does not now teach transubstantiation. I brought a message on that subject recently. Transubstantiation means change. Transubstantiation means to change from one substance into another substance. 
So according to Catholicism, after the priest has blessed the communion elements, after those elements have been consecrated, the bread, the wafer, at that surface is changed to become the literal, actual, sacrificial body and flesh of Christ. So much so that the bread is considered no longer bread. It is changed into the body of Christ. The wine is changed to become the literal, actual, sacrificial blood of Christ. So much so that the wine is considered no longer wine. That's the Catholic position. The problem is, in getting to the bottom of this, was that Lutheran authors and theologians aren't specific. I spent hours researching this. I stayed up till 2.30 a.m. on Monday morning researching this, got up and continued researching this. I have tons of quotes and all sorts of references. All of these men are vague and are content to use the line, we believe in the real presence of Christ. Fine, but none of them want to define what the real presence of Christ mean. And that's so frustrating because my opinion is, say what you mean. But they don't. I spent hours and hours trying to get to the bottom of that. I finally determined that Lutheranism teaches what Luther himself calls the sacramental union. From all that I have read, the sacramental union teaches that there is no actual change that occurs in communion. The bread throughout the communion service remains bread, but the bread is also the literal, actual, sacrificial body and flesh of Christ. According to Luther himself, it doesn't become his body as in transubstantiation, but it just is his body. It just is. Now that is confusing to me because if it is his body, at what point did it become his body? And no one says, according to the sacramental union, the wine remains wine. It doesn't change. But it is also the literal, actual, sacrificial blood of Christ. According to Luther, it doesn't become his blood. It just is his blood. So the communicants actually eat in Lutheranism, as Catholics do, eat and drink the actual, literal flesh and blood of Christ. So the conclusion is that both Lutheran and Catholic perspectives on communion result in someone eating and drinking the actual literal sacrificial flesh and actual literal sacrificial blood of Jesus. That means that the differences between the Catholic position and the Lutheran position on communion are so small as to be, to be almost inconsequential. The Lutheran position is not transubstantiation in a technical sense, but the Lutheran perspective still believes in the real presence of Christ in the communion elements. And that means that those communion communicants at a Lutheran Eucharistic service are actually eating and drinking the flesh and bread of Jesus. The end result of both positions is the same. Catholics are free. I, I, I'm so appreciative of our religious freedom and the First Amendment and of all of our freedoms that we are afforded this nation. Uh, Catholics are free to believe in transubstantiation. Lutherans are free to believe in the sacramental union. But I cannot believe that Christ actually intended for us to eat human flesh and drink human blood at a worship service as a part of communion, especially 
if that flesh and blood is his own. I, I can't accept it. I was extremely close to being right. But I was still wrong. Someone said close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. As soon as I realized that I had made this mistake, I, I contacted Tom. I said, please, please remove the sermon video from the website. And it remained down and wasn't uploaded until Thursday. And um, it is now there, but that entire segment on Luther and Lutheranism, and I didn't misrepresent the other comments, but that entire segment has been completely deleted from that message. I had to do that because I could not in good conscience, knowing that I had spoken an untruth, unintentionally, but I had spoken an untruth, I could not let an untruth go out and be perpetuated through, you know, World Wide Web on our internet. I couldn't do that. And so he did that. Uh, if you heard me, I hope and pray that you have forgiven me. Um, uh, remember Jesus said, <clears throat> he who is without sin cast the first stone. Remember that. And um, so, so be nice to me after the service. Thank you. Let's stand to our feet.